Hey, today we are beginning our brand new series. It's called Anchored Faith. And uh, the, the purpose behind this series was we hear a lot of testimony about when people become Christians and the thing, the thing that it is that, that brought them to Christ or that made Christ seem real to them. But we don't often hear the stories from people that have been in the faith for 20 years. Sometimes I, I ask myself the question, what is, what is the thing that keeps us locked into faith? Like, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you probably would have experienced the highs and lows that come with that. There are times of, of great joy, and there are times of trial that come with that as well, and that's, that's called life. And so we thought it'd be a great thing to hear from people about what it is, what are the things that keep them secured and locked into their faith X number of years on from the day that they first uh, accepted Christ as their Lord and Saviour. So we're going to talk about a few things today. Mine, uh, mine is, is look, it's, I've got three things that I want to talk about. And knowing me, it could go for a while and that clock's broken. So good luck to all of you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it starts with when I first really understood who Christ was and, and made that decision. And I actually don't tell this story very often. And, and the reason for that is, um, will, will become apparent very shortly, but. I remember being at a, a youth conference. I'd been spe- I was one of the keynote speakers at the camp, and uh, we'd been delivering. And there was myself. There was a guy called Matt Davies who worked for the Bible Society, and uh, Matt's history was somewhat checkered. He'd been in a, a bikey gang for a while. He'd uh, had some ups and downs. He was a tough guy that had a real drugs and rock and roll sort of a salvation story. Then there was another guy called uh, Kent <sighs> Liam's. Uh, <laughs> And Kent was, uh, he worked for Bible, uh, the Bible, uh, Bible smugglers. So he'd been spending about six years in China smuggling Bibles across the border. And then there was me. I have no cool story. <laughs> I was, I was the vanilla pastor from Cairns that they roped in because another guy couldn't make it. And so, on the uh, second last night of camp, everyone was sharing their stories. And we've been hearing these amazing stories about smuggling Bibles into China. We've been hearing these amazing stories about a life that God had taken from, from you know, rock and roll and drugs and brought to a point where he was now uh, testifying and, and speaking to kids in schools all over Australia. And then they said, Jira, can you share your salvation story? And I went, oh, no. Nah. They said, no, no, really. And I went, oh, Okay. My story happened when I was 11 years old. We, uh, we had a dog, and that dog's name was Woofy, or Warifka. And uh, it was a absolute, uh, look, it was a, a hybrid dog <laughs> from a lot of different breeds, and it had a nickname, and it was affectionately known in the compound in PNG where we lived as Tabletop, because this dog was fat. Like, it was so large that my father could put a coffee cup on it and it would stay on the dog's back. This dog was huge. Now, we lived in Papua New Guinea at the time, and and i got to be honest from you, from, from sort of 20 metres away, that dog looked like a pig. The amount of people that broke into our compound, realised it was a dog and left again, was ridiculous. But I'd grown up with this dog. This dog had been alive longer than I had. And uh, I remember one, one fateful night, the dog, unfortunately, just got old. Got very old. And uh, the guys that lived in the compound next door, he was a vet. And he came over and he gave my dad the bad news and said, this, isn't, this, this dog needs to, to be let go. 
And so as an 11-year-old, I went through this very traumatic process where I said goodbye to a dog that I'd known my entire life. It was my best friend. It was my pal. Um, I used to hug it, play with it. It was, it was wonderful. And we had to say goodbye. And the next day, I remember being so sad. And my, my, my mum, whom I love so much, said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I miss, I miss Woofie. I, I, want, I, I miss him. And she says, well, you know, he's in heaven now. And I went, oh, okay. Well, that's good. And she goes, well, you know, if when you go to heaven, you'll see him as well. And I went, oh, really? Now, look, my mum's theology, not amazing. But to an 11-year-old kid, I decided at that moment I was going to heaven because I was going to see my dog again. And so my mum led me through the sinner's prayer that day, downstairs on the patio. And I prayed the sinner's prayer, and from that moment I went, I am saved. Now, let's just go back to that youth camp that I was on. You reckon that was the greatest story of salvation the kids had ever heard? (laughs) Questionable theology, a dog that had died and an 11-year-old going, I'm now saved because I want to see my dog in heaven again. But you know what? Despite everything else, there was moments beyond that time when Jesus was undeniably real to me. And I'm not a big fan of going that there is one pivotal moment and you say the sinner's prayer and that's it. We're done and dusted, baby. I believe that there is a process which people go through. There is an initial moment where Christ starts to become real to them. And there are moments throughout your life where you see and you grow deeper and closer to who God is. And yeah, that was my story. It started with a dog that died. But my story progressed into a lot of different places. My story has led me to a place where I have uh, been in ministry, paid ministry as a pastor for 15 years. I have spent time in the mission field as a missionary kid. I've spent time here. I've grown my own pastor's kids. I've had uh, my own church. I have been ministering in other churches. I've spent time working outside the church as well, and it's been a great experience. And all of my life, I have always felt anchored in my faith, despite the fact that sometimes storms rage and that anchor line gets slack and sometimes it's tight. I've had the privilege in my time of studying at university. I've studied law at uni. I've studied theology at uni and now psychology at uni. And I can tell you this about all three of them. None of them give me any hope for mankind. And yeah, you heard me right. Theology was in the middle there. And don't get me wrong. Theology is wonderful. I have loved studying it. And you learn some amazing things. But I've also learned that as people, we like to argue a lot. And as people, we like to get caught up on, on little things. And we like to die on those hills of little things. And we like to get really frustrated by them. We argue about them and, and we forget that there are people that are hurting that need to hear the love of Christ. And that we can't forsake people because of our intricacies. So there are three things, three things in my life that I really enjoy that keep me anchored. We're going to go through those now, but let me pray first and then we'll kick on. Lord God, thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're an amazing king. But we thank you for the, for the, the hundreds of promises that we can hold to in scripture. The fact that we can know that you are our God today and you are the same God 
that you were yesterday and you'll be the same God tomorrow as well. Lord, we thank you that you are our God and you are our anchor, you are our rock and you are our foundation. And so we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, all my life, I've been involved in faith communities. My parents uh, were both raised in, in Christian homes. My grandparents were, were Christians on, on both sides. My grandfather on my mum's side is a pastor and an elder of a church. He's planted churches. I have grown up in faith communities. As a, teen, as a child, sorry, I spent most of my formative years involved in MAF in PNG. My parents worked for MAF. I lived on a compound with six other families, all Christians. You would think that I would have everything locked away, right? I took inventory of a lot of my friends growing up that came out of the mission field. Unfortunately, it's not locked up. No matter how strong your parents' faith, we need to find our own faith. It is amazing to be raised in that way, and I am grateful for it. But your faith must become your own to be real. And that was something I learned uh, growing up. It was one of those things. But... But what I want to get to is, is the, the idea of community. I've always enjoyed the privilege of being in community, whether it was the community of my extended family. My mother was one of seven. Um, my goodness, our family Christmases have about 60 people on mum's side alone. People needed to get TVs. And um, I was always part of community, and I was raised in a family where there was an expectation that you would serve as part of the church. To be involved in church meant that you would serve. Because that is what community is. Everyone pitches in, everyone's part of it. In fact, the, the one scripture that has stuck with me my entire life and always made sense to me and was drilled into me as a child was in James chapter 2, verse 14. James writes and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You know, James says something that's very controversial. Don't get me wrong. He, he seems to come apart, but he, uh, differently to what Paul had been saying. But what he says is accurate. And this is the formation of who I was as a person in, in community. That line. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We're not saved by our works, but our, our faith should encourage works. And a community in which we live in is so important. See, community does so much for us in our faith formation. We were made for community. The concept of Christian community is such an important part of love because it's within the context of relationship that we have the opportunity to express love and to receive it. God is so creative in that he gave us a body of believers and people around us as a way to express the give and take of love no matter what our relationship status within the body. There are seven things about community that I absolutely love. We're going to go through them. First of all, community challenges you to be more like Jesus. Nothing makes you more like Jesus than the daily grind of interactions with others. The truth is God gives us community as a way of becoming more like him. 
We're put in relationships in order to encourage one another in our pursuit of God and his kingdom. It's within the context of community. Is there a ringing or is it just in my ears? There's a ringing? Pat, can I borrow your microphone? Thanks. No, you fixed it? Awesome. That's exciting. It's here. But in community, we find that we have ways of demonstrating the love that Christ has showed us to other people. At the same time, we have a way of receiving and seeing how that plays out in the lives of the people around us. We're given opportunity to be refined as followers of Christ. Secondly, community meets meets practical needs. Just like the early church community is a place where we come to get our physical needs met, we need to learn to let down the walls and ask for help from our brothers and sisters. And that's a hard thing to do. We don't always like to do that. But to be able to let down our walls and ask for help when we need help gives us such a greater chance of rebuilding, of recovering, of recouping. So know that we have people that care enough about us to help us rebuild in our times of struggle is so vital. We are not made to be islands. We are not made to be alone. We were made for community. God designed us to work with one another, to uplift each other, to help each other, to support each other. Community carries us emotionally. As important as our physical needs are, our emotional needs that we carry through life are just as important. We are given responsibility to support one another in hard times, to carry one another's burdens. As much as we need to be available for each other, we need to encourage them to come alongside us when we're the ones that are in need of support, when we're the ones in need of prayer, when we're the ones in need of a shoulder to cry on. It's so important to be learn, to learn to be real with one another because that's what community was all about. You know, I learned this one the hard way. I've been pastoring for 12 years, full-time. And in that time, a lot of stuff had happened to me and I didn't know what was going on in my life. I felt weird, was the way I described it. And uh, somebody from our denomination put me in touch with a, a psychologist. And within one session, that psychologist said, you have severe depression and severe anxiety. I'm going to refer you to someone locally because you need some help. And I went, what? That doesn't sound like me. And so I fought it, because that's what you do, right? You go, nah, that's other people. And uh, my wife will testify that <laughs> I wasn't a great person to be around. <laughs> but you know what? It wasn't until I stopped and humbled myself and went, you know what? I, I think it's fine for me to help other people, but why don't I think it's fine for me to ask for help from other people? Why is it not okay for me to accept help, but why is it okay for me to want to help? And I took a moment, and you know what? I had some beautiful people come alongside me. People that I still call friends. People that I still check in with. People that I care so much for. Who helped me through a really tough... Here's here's one I prepared earlier. I reckon that battery's gone, Matt. (laughs) And so these people came alongside and I I, I grew with these people and I journeyed with these people and I asked for help. And you know what? The help helped. 
Community empowers our relationship with God. There's something real about the concept of power in numbers. When we're surrounded by other believers, we feel empowered in our faith and we become a bit more sensitive to God's presence in our lives. Let me ask you, how do you feel in those moments when you're sitting with a couple of other people who all feel and share the same passion as you? My, my wife has a, an amazing friend and we had her and her husband over uh, for dinner recently. And he's a really nice guy and I like him, but we don't have a lot in common. And he's also a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> like, he's super smart. And we were talking, we started talking, and he's a car guy. I'm, a, I'm like, man, I don't like, I'm a, I'm a bike guy. But we started talking about speed <laughs> and driving really fast at 100 kilometers an hour because that's the speed limit. And our conversation went from being quite forced at times to a conversation where we both shared this this same language and this passion and this love. And it was like talking to a guy that I'd known my entire life as we shared and bonded over this thing. You know, when we're in a group of believers, when we share something, there are so many people in this room. And you know what the thing is? The thing that bonds you and I together is Christ. As much as you're all wonderful people, I probably would not be in the same social circles as many of you. We just don't have those circles. But yet here in this place, bonded by a love of Christ and what he has done for you and I, we share an amazing connection. And that connection grows as we challenge each other, as we grow with one another, and as we love one another. Community teaches us to work through conflicts. Bring any group of people together and one thing is certain, conflict is inevitable. Even in churches. Who would have thought? We're asked to be a united body, which isn't always easy or natural, and it can be a humbling experience that teaches us to lay down our pride and to work through things that just aren't important sometimes. You know, I uh, <laughs> when I took over the church in Mariba, um, there was in this story, I haven't told this story, by the way, <laughs> and oh, there are snitches in here, hang on, where are you? Where are you? We don't talk about these things. Even though it's on stream, we don't, we don't get this back. Anyway, when I went to Mariba, there was this, uh, they had this beautiful upright piano and it sat there. And on top of this upright piano, there was the most ugly vase you have ever seen in your life. And the first thing I thought was that vase is gone. So I picked it up, put it down, put it in a cupboard. Got to church on Sunday, vase was back. It was magical. I went, how is this possible? took the vase down, put it away. And then a lovely person within the church started hunting around for it, found it, put it back whilst the worship was happening. I went, where did this vase, what's, what about this vase is so important? Because it was ugly. And they said, no, no, it was donated by a wonderful person. I'm like, oh, cool, are they in the church? No, they've died. Do we, do we need the vase still? Yes. Like, okay, this is going to be an issue for us. Um, and so I let it go for a while. I tried to work around it. I tried relationship building. I tried conflict resolution. I tried everything that I had in my toolbox until the word toolbox finally dawned on me. We had a working bee coming up. We needed a ladder to clean the cobwebs from the corners of the ceiling. I may have accidentally knocked it off with the ladder when I was cleaning the cobwebs. And it shattered into a million pieces and I went, oh no! And everyone else went, oh no! 
And there was frustration for a while, but you know what? We got through it. We got through that. And when we talked about it, we talked about why it was so important. It came down to the, to the fact that we, we, we didn't even know. And this lovely lady who I had coffee, uh, tea with the next day, she didn't even know why it was so important. You know, when we come together, community teaches us about what's really important in our lives. Some of the things that we hold to just aren't that important. But you know what was important? This, this lovely lady and I building a relationship that went on to develop a flower arranging committee in the church. <laughs> and that became the next pastor's problem. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> but we discovered what was really important. We deal with conflict. We get through these things together. And lastly, community fills our gaps. Our Western world context seems to, have lost, seems to have lost the benefits of community. In community, we find support to fill the gaps that we don't have. It's the family you don't have. It's the skills that you lack. It's the talents and abilities we have to bless others with. Now, I just want to say for a second here that I've been talking about community, and we've been talking a little bit about our faith community, but it is really important that that isn't our only community. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And here's the thing. You can't be in the world if you don't, well, go into the world. It's important to have community outside of just our church. It is important to speak to our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends. It is important to join your local cricket club and meet people that wouldn't normally come into a church. It is important to have community that extends that we can bless others, that we can bring them into an amazing truth. The second thing, so community was a huge thing that was was very foundational to me. And whilst the first reason that I still hold strong to my faith is community and I'm anchored in faith is community, the second reason is because my faith is substantive. What I mean by that is that, that there is a place within the Christian faith and with what we believe for rational argument and logical thought and even scientific method. The fundamental parts of Christianity can be explored and examined as more than just myth and fairy tale. And that was really important to me in my development and my foundation. I had to know that what I could, what I believed in could be discussed, could be examined, could be pulled apart, could be challenged. There are a lot of religious claims that are made in, in various religions throughout the world and faith bases that are not verifiable or falsifiable. And what I mean by that is that, that when we talk about something being falsifiable, it's, it's a scientific term and method. It means that any theory that we have, if it can be proved false, then we either get rid of it or we modify it. And you know what? When it comes to faith-based arguments, a lot of the time that's not the case, but Christianity is actually different. See, Christianity makes a claim that an event happened in space and time. Jesus Christ died and was then raised from the dead. And the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, if this didn't happen, you should dismiss our entire religion. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. This is an empirical claim that is in principle falsifiable. If we don't rule it out by assumption, then we can apply methods of rational inquiry to judge whether the event really happened. Now, I'm not going to take you through a whole massive lecture on apologetics. That's not, that's not what we're going to do today. We don't have the time. 
But there is something really important. Because someone once asked me, if you had to make a rational uh, defense of Christianity, what would you say? And you know, First Peter 3.15 calls us to be able to do this. It tells us to have a reason for our faith and an argument for why we believe. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go too far into it. However, there is a really important argument that meant so much to me, and I want to share that one with you. And, and it's a little heavy, but we're going to stick with me. This, this, this argument that was so important, it's called the Lord, Liar, or Lunatic Argument, or rather the Trilemma. And I first came across it in the books of C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity. I want to read something to you. And this is in Lewis's words. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This argument is effective. This argument was effective to me for the very reason that it points us to the very heart of the Christian faith, the person who was Christ Jesus. The essence of the argument is that we cannot put Jesus off as a good teacher. He calls us to actually honestly engage with the person of Jesus that we find in the Bible and make a decision about his extraordinary claims. However, one major obstacle to any engagement with Jesus is skepticism about the Bible. And you know what? There's a whole thing we can go through, and I have pages of notes which I'm about to dismiss. But we can take you through a logical argument. We can have that argument another day. I'd love to do that. The thing about my faith is that it points to a real figure that, that no historian in history with any credibility can claim was not real. That Jesus was alive, was born in Nazareth, was crucified on a cross is not in doubt. And even his resurrection, the evidence for his resurrection, causes people that are deniers of the resurrection to even acknowledge its probability. When we go through and we look at it with so much evidence of the author's in Scripture's meticulous attention to detail, the cooperation by archaeology and non-Christian authors. There is so much to point to the Gospels being trusted to provide us with a really reliable portrait of the works and actions of Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what? When we go through all of those things, when it comes back to it, I had to ask myself this question. It's a question I still ask myself today that anchors me in who I am as a Christian.
Will I accept him and continue to accept him as my Lord and Savior, or will I reject him? There are no other choices. I have a faith that can be tested, that can be talked about, that can be argued, a faith that is felt, that is real, that is substantive. I have a faith that's anchored in history. The last part, part three, is, is we're going to skip a few, Charlie. The last one is, uh, it, it's actually, I've titled it, They Don't Serve Breakfast in Hell. I, I grew up, I, I started listening to Christian music in the 90s. And there's a song by the Newsboys called Breakfast that came out in 96. In the peak of Christian cringe music. DC Talk, the Newsboys, P.O.D., Skillet, the Lads, O.C. Supertones, Five Iron Frenzy. <gasps> I was doing sermon prep late at night and do not go down a road of looking at Christian music on YouTube. You will lose hours, I promise you. But I found these bands and, and there was this one song and it still sticks with me and it's a song by the Newsboys and the chorus goes, when the toast is burnt, the milk is turned and Captain Crunch is waving farewell. When the big one finds you, may this song remind you that they don't serve breakfast in hell. The song was about the importance of having a daily life with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. As important as your breakfast is, so is your, your day with Jesus. And that line, though, they don't serve breakfast in hell, stuck with an 11-year-old really hard. I mean, I've got to be honest with you, I don't expect you to get it. I can barely believe I'm standing here with the words coming out of my mouth. But it left a lasting impression on me. They don't serve Cocoa Pops in hell. And this launched a desire within me to be passionate about my faith, that I didn't want others to, well, miss out on breakfast. Because they were in hell. And at the heart of every true believer, there has to come a time when Christ becomes real to us. Romans chapter 10 in verse 14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one for whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The commission, the charge, the desire that I would not see anyone hurt, suffer or perish. The desire that I would be Christ's hands and feet. That we would do good things to those around us. That we would raise people up rather than tear them down. In a world that loves to put me first and others second, the desire to do as Christ and to put others first. To see joy to see a glimpse of the goodness of God in other people as we serve. This anchors me to my faith today. Because you know what? If, if this is it, if the life that we live now, if this is it, then that's not great. <laughs> I have to believe that there is something greater than me that created this world. That there is something greater than me that designed this world. There is someone greater than me that is in control. And that is something that I want to share with other people. I'm going to close up. 
But just as I finish, for me personally, my faith is is anchored in, in a sense of the love of God, is anchored in a sense of faith that I cannot explain, but is also anchored in a sense of explanation and an authority of Scripture. I still believe because God is real to me. He is real in my experience, He is real in my logic, and He is real in what I see around me. I feel anchored in faith because I know who my God is. And there are times that I struggle. There are times when I feel drawn away. There are times when I feel super close. There are times when I stand on a stage to preach and I feel hypocritical. But you know what? My God is still real. He still loves me. He still cares for me. I still believe that the Bible is the word of God. It is true, inspired, and relevant. Even the boring parts, the bloody parts, the parts that make you see red in the face, the call me crazy parts, but when it comes to the reliability of Scripture, I trust that God is sovereign from the time Moses' pen touched parchment until the canon was closed. I still believe in miracles. I believe in seas parting, lame walking. I believe in all of these things. These miracles, these divine interruptions in the clockwork of the cosmos are the mysterious ways in which God moves. I will not demote them to metaphor. It is the same God who raised Lazarus to life has the power to raise me up on the last day. Metaphors do not do that. I still believe in prayer. The kind that dad says at the dinner table and the kind that cures cancer. Prayer is not a last resort or the least I can do, but prayer is a real means to a real end. I still believe in heaven and hell, perhaps not the scenes that we see in Dante or Gitto or Bosch, but make no mistake, I still believe. I still believe in the gospel. Christ paid the penalty for my sin through good old-fashioned blood sacrifice. Strange, I know, but stranger still, God counts his son's righteousness as my own and welcomes me into the kingdom, not because of my good works, but because of his grace. It is an old story, but it is not outdated. And I am not ashamed of it. These are the things that anchor me in my faith. Perhaps you believe alongside me. Perhaps that's a challenge for you. Perhaps you'd like to examine those things and challenge me on the things that I believe. Cool, let's do that. I always like coffee. But just as the guys come up and prepare for their last song, We're about to sing a song that talks about the foundations of faith. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. What is it that anchors you in your faith today? Maybe maybe you're feeling that anchor's not there. Maybe you're feeling like the anchor line is just way too loose. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe the Christmas period has done a a bit of a number. We've gone through a whole lot as a community lately. But let me ask you, what are the things that anchor you to your faith? As we come into a new year, we're going to talk about this. You're going to hear from Kate next week and then Laura and Jeff about the things that anchor them. But let me encourage you, find that anchor. Hold tight to it. Your God is real and he loves you very much. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you're our God and King. We thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you are our anchor, our foundation, that we can hold faith and strong to you. The Lord, we know that you are God despite circumstance. You are God despite context. You are God despite anything that comes our way. That you are Lord and King. 
that we hold tight to you. And Lord, we know that you are unchanging. Lord, I pray that you become more and more real to us in this next year. That we as a people seek after you, chase after you, desire after you. That we hold tight to the things that we know to be true. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.